Submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 981993, Florida versus JL. <laughs> Spectators are admonished do not talk until you leave the courtroom. The court remains in session. Mr. Neiman. Uh, is it Nyman or Neiman? Neiman, Your Honor. Neiman, Mr. Neiman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue before the Court today is whether an anonymous tip that provides a specific location and a specific description of individuals and one of the individuals is carrying a gun provides reasonable suspicion to <coughs> make a Terry stop and frisk when only the innocent details, that is the location and the identity of the individuals, are immediately verified. The Florida Supreme Court held that under such facts that would never provide reasonable suspicion to provide, uh, to allow for the stop. The Florida Supreme Court requires further verification of either future predictive behavior or observation of criminal activity in order for the stop to be What's effectuated. What's the closest case from this court, in your view, that you think supports your position? Well, the closest case that we have is Alabama versus White, where on facts similar to this, uh, the court held that it was a close call, but in fact there was a reasonable suspicion. In that case, it was a drug case, and the police officers acted upon a little more than we have here. Some of the predictive activity did not occur, and a small amount of the predictive activity did occur, but that predictive activity well, was I innocent. Well, I thought the court there said that standing alone, the tip in the Alabama case would not warrant someone of reasonable caution in the belief that a stop was appropriate. But uh, this case, there is more than the tip and it went on to articulate other factors. Yes, Your Honor. That is the closest case. But also, if you, when we read Alabama versus White, this Court said that that question of the anonymous tip in and of itself was left open and would be left to be decided another day. Well, it may have said that elsewhere, but it also said what I read to you, that standing alone, it wouldn't be enough. So, uh, to accept your view, we would have to move a step beyond. I, th- I believe so, Your Honor. And I believe under the facts of the circumstances in this case, where we're dealing with a dangerous weapon, a firearm, the public slash officer safety concerns. Are you arguing effect. then for a firearm exception on the anonymous tip? No, not at all, Your Honor. Uh, a firearm exception would basically say any time a tip says a firearm, that's all that's needed. What the state is arguing here is that that, when there is a firearm involved, then that is one of the circumstances that we look at under the totality of the circumstances to determine whether the anonymous tip is valid. Is it even illegal in Florida to carry a concealed firearm? Or can people legally have one? It's a regulated privilege, not a right in the state of Florida, and that allows uh, is for But a, one does not assume in Florida that in every instance possession of a firearm concealed is unlawful? No. Well, but it's, it's unlawful for a minor. Correct. It? And this person was a, a minor? Correct. Ten days shy of his 16th birthday. 
The, the, red, the red brief says that you, in effect, are arguing for a, a gun exception to the anonymous tip rule. And it, it seems to me uh, that the red brief is, uh, is in, in, in essence, fair when it characterizes your argument that way. Because I think what you're telling us is that the nature of the tip, i.e., that there is a gun, somehow makes the tip uh, more reliable. It, it, that would depend. I, I, I'm, that doesn't seem to me logical. That would depend. It seems to me there may be good arguments for your position, but it's not because it makes the tip somehow more reliable. Your Honor, that would depend upon the circumstances. If we had, it doesn't make it any more reliable here, does it? I thought, I mean, does it make it reliable, more well, reliable? It certainly does. Well, it's a, it's a fact that we're looking at of reliability that someone who had seen what was going on made a phone call to the police that they described the individuals, and that information contained a description, a location, and the fact that one of the but, individuals was carrying a firearm. That, that, that could be true. Of a, of a uh, tip that the person was carrying drugs. Your argument here is that it's much more dangerous to society if this person is not picked up. He could do more harm with a gun than he could with a cache of drugs, isn't it? Correct, Your Honor. And therefore, you don't need as much reliability. Isn't that your argument? Correct. Your argument is not that the tip is more reliable. It's that you don't — we will not insist upon the same degree of reliability when, when the argument is that the guy has a gun. Maybe even less for an atomic bomb. <laughs> now, now my, my, my question is, why, why, why do we uh, apply this principle just to stop and frisk? If the principle is a valid one, shouldn't it apply to search and seizure as well? So that we shouldn't really insist upon the same degree of probable cause if it is said that you know that someone has an arsenal in his basement. Well, because, I, I, I mean, the degree of public harm is enormous or, you know, is, is making bombs. Or, now, we don't do that for, for search and seizure. I don't see why there's any more justification for doing it for stop and frisk than, than, there, than there is for doing it for search and seizure. Well, in the search and seizure area, uh, the state has cited numerous cases where we do look at officer safety in extending uh, searches and, and frisks. We look at the New York versus Belton, where we have uh, an ability to search the car for weapons after the uh, individuals are ready in the police well, that, car. That's fine, but not to conduct a search on the basis of less probable cause than would normally be necessary. We don't say if there's a really serious threat to the public involved, you don't need the same degree of probable cause. We haven't said that. Well, the intrusions between probable cause and a reasonable suspicion, Terry Frisk, are a little bit different. Well, I understand and that. But that's if the principle is valid, I don't know why it wouldn't apply to one as to the other. Well, because the, the intrusions are different. Uh, and you would need more for a full-scale arrest and search when there's probable cause, because you have to establish probable cause. And probable cause, I don't believe, is as fluid a situation as reasonable suspicion, because in reasonable suspicion situation, we are, in fact, looking at a totality of the circumstances. Well, no, no, you're, you're getting in, in back on the notion that, that I thought we've put that to rest and, and, and don't have to go over the same ground again. You, you, you acknowledge that it has nothing to do with whether the suspicion is reasonable or not. No, I don't acknowledge it, that. Oh, oh, we if, I, if I did, I misspoke, Your Honor. I think that the fact of the matter is that when there is that firearm in that situation, 
and in a particularly described situation, not in a situation where you would say, uh, get a tip that there is 100 people on the corner all wearing plaid shirts and one of those individuals has a firearm. That would be the firearm exception if the officer then could go and search each and every one of the individuals. Well, if, if in this very same case the tip were uh, there is a man in a plaid shirt who's in possession of a marijuana cigarette standing on the corner. I do not believe at that point in time the public safety or the officer's safety would be affected, and therefore we would have to wait to see whether or not well, there was a drug. The tip here is there's a weapon, and all of us, the officer is nowhere near. But you say that that's enough to assume that the officer's safety is in jeopardy? Well, the well, officer. He's taking his car to drive over to check it out. Well, he's not there. Correct. But once he goes there, the, what, what is the officer supposed to do at that point in time? And well, that's one would have thought nothing unless we extend the anonymous tip doctrine to cover it. Yes. I mean, I would have thought that our cases would suggest the anonymous tip with nothing more than somebody in a plaid shirt on a street corner has a concealed weapon. I wouldn't have thought that was enough unless we somehow extend the doctrine. Well, in that situation, what would be proper police may, might not be what is under the case law, but what would be proper police investigation in that situation? And you would have to give the officer's experience and the based upon the neighborhood, the area. Counsel, the officer's experience is that guns are often mixed up with drugs. So the anonymous tip is three guys standing on a street corner and one of them in a plaid-like shirt has crack. And the police officer knows from his experience that people who engage in selling crack often have guns. So does it follow from what you say that the police having an anonymous tip about crack can therefore frisk for a weapon? No. In that situation, once again, the, the, the tip is the knowledge that there is drugs or the idea that there might be drugs present, and I believe that the requirement there is to wait until there is actual sale or use of the drugs, and then you would have the problem is not The officer's concern, or in this case she, her concern is not the drugs, but the gun. She knows from her experience that those two very often go together. So why on the same safety rationale for the police officer, once she gets there, couldn't she say, well, the tip was about drugs, but I know from experience that he's probably carrying a gun, so I'm going to, for my safety, frisk him. Well, the first thing is that the tip would have come in and an officer getting a tip of that nature would have surmised that the person had seen the individuals uh, where they were located, described them, and had seen the gun. And therefore, without the drugs being involved, and the tip would have said the drug, the, the gun, and that's the difference. In the other situation, the Your Honor gives us, we don't know that there are drugs. We're using the basic surmise of the officer that there could be a gun, but the information that was gotten was the drugs, and that is part of the totality of the circumstances that well, provides. In, in your in your so public safety uh, arguments, you're not, as I understand, you're not arguing just for the, the safety of the policeman, but that more damage can result 
is if to some member of the public in, in a confrontation with somebody in the gun, then a confrontation with somebody who has a cache of drugs. Isn't that correct? Correct, Your Honor. In, in that situation, that's why we say the officer slash public safety, because if the officer does not act, then the individual But, I, but there's, there's a, one, one thing I don't understand. At the very beginning, I think you said that it's perfectly all right in Florida, unless you're a juvenile. I don't know how this officer knew this young, young person was a juvenile based on the tip. But except for juveniles, is it not lawful for a per- persons in Florida to carry concealed weapons? They, there is a privilege that if they go through the permitting pos- permit. But the mere fact that you suspect someone of having a gun doesn't mean he doesn't have that privilege. He doesn't have a permit. No, but we can. I think that it's more jeopardy if you say they're a drug dealer, because that's definitely illegal. But if you just say he's got a gun, well, presume, well you presume that the person obeys the law. Well, it's a presumption that they legally got the gun, but not a presumption that they were legally well, we, use we the gun. We reached a different result in Adams against Williams, did we not? Yes. Where they said Connecticut you could carry with a permit. Right. But the, the frisk was nonetheless justified. Mm-hmm. Mr. Neiman, I thought a frisk and stop and frisk, a frisk is incidental to the stop. What, what we said is when you see somebody behaving uh, suspiciously, what the policeman is authorized to do is to stop the person and make inquiry. Why are you hanging around this street corner? Where, where, where do you come from? Why are you here? Uh, what's your name? Uh, you make inquiries like that. Now, in this case, by contrast, and, and incidental, incidental to those inquiries, he has to protect himself so he can pat the person down before making the inquiry. That's, that's how it developed. In this case, by contrast, the whole reason for the policeman going up to this person is to frisk him. What possible question was he going to ask the fellow that would, that would satisfy him that, in fact, he is not the suspicious character that, that he had reason to believe? What's he going to ask him? Do you have a gun in your pocket? Is that going to be very helpful? Well, that's what the Florida Supreme Court said would be helpful, and you put the officer at all. The whole purpose of his going up is to frisk. And Correct. that's quite different from the rationale behind our stop and frisk, uh, uh, our stop and frisk jurisprudence. Terry normally, Terry holds exactly that. You have to have evidence of criminal activity, and then during that stop, if you are afraid of safety, you the stop in order yes. to interrogate the person. Exactly. And I don't see what possible benefit interrogation would have had in this case. Well, that's what makes this a different situation in terms of the totality of circumstances. If the officer is going to investigate this alleged crime of carrying a concealed firearm, and he goes up and speaks to the individual, there is a distinct possibility that when he says, do you have a gun, the gun will be exhibited and used. And therefore, this is different. Therefore, there is a concomitant need to both stop and frisk immediately. It isn't on the user circumstance. It is not, it is not the rule. Mr. Neiman, do you concede there were three people standing at that street corner, and the officer frisked them all? As to the other two, the anonymous tip related only to the one with the plaid-like shirt. As to the other two, was that wrongful conduct on the part of the police, to frisk the other two? The, the record was not — If I'm, I'm not sure how clear the record is on the sequence of events. I would say that if those frisks occurred first, they probably were not proper, because they were not the ones who were said to have the gun. I think once they found the gun, I believe it was proper. Guilt by association. <laughs> well, public safety exception, Your Honor. It seems say to me that's, that's absolutely the wrong answer, that, that if, indeed, if indeed he was frisking for the proper purpose, that is, to protect himself, 
he had just as much reason to frisk the two that were next to this fellow while he was conducting the interrogation, just as when the, when the, when the police stop a car on reasonable suspicion. They, they can frisk not just the driver but other people in the car to be sure that, that, they're, not, uh, that they're not endangered. I don't see any reason why he shouldn't frisk all three unless I believed, as you apparently do, that really what he went there for was not to interrogate but to frisk. Well, no. And he only had a reason to frisk the, the, the person uh, against whom the anonymous tip was made. I believe that the reason was to interrogate, but because the evidence of the criminality was the carrot-concealed firearm, we are put in a different situation that to interrogate before you ascertain whether the crime is being committed puts the police officer in harm's way at that time. And if you fail to do the interrogation, you, you place a public safety in harm's way because you do not know when that individual might take out the gun and start using it. I would like to re- uh, save the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Neiman. Mr. Gorenstein, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, an officer may conduct a stop and frisk when, under the totality of the circumstances, there's reasonable suspicion that a crime is occurring and that the suspect is armed with Well, you don't say that was met here, do you? Reasonable yes, suspicion? Yes, reasonable suspicion is under the totality of the circumstances what, met in what this case. What facts were there other than the anonymous tip and someone who, who in fact, was on a street corner in a plaid shirt? The totality of the circumstances consists of the following four things. The tip, the confirmation of the verifiable details of the tip, the absence of any observations that led the officer to conclude that there was that his suspicions should not be aroused when he got to the scene, and the fact that this tip concerned a gun that was unlawful for a child to possess, and therefore the level of suspicion that you was needed. it readily apparent that it was a juvenile? Well, I mean, the, would somebody know whether the person were 18 or 17? This, this ch- the, the, the law of Florida is that anyone under 21 cannot carry a gun, and this ch- this person was under 16 years of age. So any officer who came to the scene and observed that person would have had reasonable suspicion that that was a child there. Can now, you tell me about the, the tips for a moment? It, do you have any information that we can uh, uh, consult? As to whether or not the great majority of tips in gun cases are uh, correct or incorrect, our jurisprudence is such that we, we fear tips because of pranks and, uh, and, and people who have vendettas. Uh, and the assumption is, is that they are usually unreliable. Can, can you tell us that anything to bear on this, are, are tips about guns generally reliable or not? We, we don't have any empirical evidence on this. And when you're presented with a tip like this, I think what you re- resort to is a common-sense judgment, that if there's nothing on the face of the tip that is unreliable, the officer is going to go out to the scene. Once he's at the scene and he confirms the observable details and nothing decreases his suspicion, then the alternatives to a stop and frisk pose an unreasonable risk of danger to the police and the public. If the police have the name of the the, the capacity to check the number from which the call originated, does that make the tip um, perhaps more reliable? Because it does. It it's does. A crime, it's a crime to violate to have a false report under 911. It would. 
it would make the tip more reliable, and that would be a factor in the totality of the circumstances if it could be shown that it was a 911 call that was — that you could record, that you knew where the call came from. What do we know here? Did the tip say it was a a youngster? It said — I believe that the testimony is uh, at uh, A41, and this is the only thing on it, and the officer says, I believe they stated they were young, referring to the tipster. To your earlier answer, why, I, why is it that, that, that the fact that you have caller ID makes the tip more reliable? It's because Even though the caller doesn't know that you have caller ID? Well, it would have to be combined with general knowledge that, ah. uh, of Justice Scalia, of, of the public, that they right. could potentially right. — And combined uh, with a very stupid caller who tries to be anonymous when he knows that he can't well, be anonymous well, because he's calling from his home phone and you have caller ID. It seems to me the very mere fact that, that, that he, 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 he remains anonymous and doesn't tell you his name indicates that he doesn't — he believes he can, he can be unknown and doesn't want to be known. Justice Scalia, there are varying degrees in a, of, of anonymity, but I would, I would accept your basic point that unless the person um, are the, it's generally known that caller ID uh, is out there, that it doesn't weigh into the, the calculus that much. Keep everything else — no, no, please. Keep, keep everything else the same and only vary the gun and change it to a book that's copyrighted unlawfully or said drugs or marijuana or some other thing. Then I take it you'd say there wasn't reasonable suspicion. That's correct, because Sorry. Alabama — how do, how do we get the fact, since it's supposed to be reasonable suspicion, that criminal activity is afoot? How, how do we say that, that that changes? That doesn't change. What changes is the degree of reasonable suspicion that will justify the stop or this frisk. I would say that it would be the, the degree of suspicion that we call reasonable under I the circumstances. I thought maybe you could say that then, but the way the term has been used in the cases, it hasn't been said suspicion that is sufficiently reasonable to justify the search. Rather, it said uh, reasonable suspicion that criminal activity is afoot. Well, I would agree with you that the cases haven't specifically uh, addressed this particular factor, but that's because the issue hasn't been put to the court. This is the first time the cases, the issue is being put to the court that the degree of ga- danger weighs into whether it constitutes reasonable suspicion under the circumstances. What about probable cause? Would, would you adopt this, a similar sliding scale for probable cause? And if, if not, why not? Justice Scalia, no. And the reason is that probable cause is, is, is constitutional text that has a meaning that must be drawn from its history and from its at early application, and that kind of sliding scale approach does not apply in a probable cause. But what we and are dealing with — we made up reasonable suspicion, it, it's totally uh, un- Scalia, unconnected to the Constitution. No. What it is interpreting is the general reasonableness requirement. And the way the Court formulated that reasonableness requirement in Terry is that you look at what a reasonable and prudent person would consider appropriate under the totality of the circumstances, and a reasonable and prudent person would necessarily take into account the fact that the tip concerns something that poses an immediate danger of violence. If the tip is about somebody at a courthouse with a bomb or somebody uh, at a school with an automatic weapon, a reasonable and prudent person is going to operate on somewhat less suspicion than otherwise in deciding whether to make a stop-and-frisk. Not an automatic weapon, just a weapon at school, anonymous tip. Well, it depends on whether the the carrying of the weapon is — you would have reasonable suspicion that it was illegal to carry the weapon. 
And in Florida, if somebody well, is — sure, the school has policy. Yes, again — No weapons in school. That's correct. Anonymous tip, weapon. Then if is that you, enough? If, if the, the, you identify the person with sufficient specificity so that when the officer comes to the scene and confirms the observable details of the tip and there's nothing else in his observations that decreases his level of suspicion, then the reasonable and prudent course is to conduct a stop and frisk because the alternatives to a stop and frisk — or create real danger to the police and the public. If the pu- police approaches the person, he runs a risk of getting shot. If he waits and see if the gun is pulled out, that person might shoot somebody. But and it's that real risk of danger. Is it critical to your position that they realize this was a young person? It is. It, well, I, I would say that it is critical in this case that there be reasonable suspicion that the person does not have a license. And that's furnished in this case by the fact that there's reasonable suspicion that he's under 21 years of age. If he had not not been under 21, you would agree that the stop would have been impermissible? You would need reasonable suspicion for some other reason. Say they're precisely the same facts, except he called up and said, my cousin who's 22 is over there. Could he have made the the, the stop? My only hesitation in saying, no, he couldn't, Justice Stevens, is there are places like New York City and the District of Columbia. We've got got a place in this particular case, a bus stop, three young men, three men, 22 years old, one of them wearing a plaid shirt. I would say no, except, and I I could just uh, finish the answer, the the, the difference is that there are some places where there are many guns and very few licenses. And if Florida were such a place, or this particular area were such a place, like the District of Columbia or New York City, where there are an extraordinary number of guns and an extremely limited number of licenses, only, say, private detectives have, really have them, then there would still be reasonable suspicion. Right. Otherwise, no. about Florida. And you would agree, in Florida, he could not I don't have the — I don't know enough about the facts in Florida. isn't the reason implication of the tip that he is carrying a gun illegally? Do you call up the cops to tell them that somebody is carrying a gun legally? Surely, surely the reasonable implication of the the tip is that this person is is behaving against the law. Justice Scalia, that is a possible inference to draw, but there is — Possible? I can't imagine. Well, because in in places where guns are widely carried, and legally so, some people may not know about that, and so the tip may just be — that the person observed a gun and it was frightening to them. But I take your point that that is one possible reasonable inference that an officer uh, could draw. And based on if, if the officer's experience was that that was so, then that would figure into the totality of the circumstances. There was nothing in this tip to convey that. The officer reported she was told that there were several black males standing at a bus stop, a description given of each one. The male with the gun had a plaid-looking shirt and was a black male. That's, I don't recall other information. On, on, on A41 in the middle, I believe they stated they were young. And so the tip alerted the, the officer to the possibility that this was somebody under 21 years of age. And when the officer got to the scene and saw a somebody who was shy of 16 years old, they certainly had reasonable suspicion that the person was carrying a concealed weapon in Thank violation you, of Florida Thank you, Mr. Gorenstein. Mr. Seffler, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I think the, uh, one of the first questions that was asked is, is, is most critical. This is Alabama versus White, but without the predictive features. The State conceded. The Solicitor General conceded it. Uh, the only justification that I can see in the State's argument for uh, upholding the stop and frisk is that an anonymous tipster alleged the presence of a firearm. 
But that, of course, doesn't make the tip any more reliable, and it doesn't lower the reasonable suspicion standard. In Terry versus Ohio, of course, this Court said that where there is a reasonable suspicion that the individual is engaged in criminality, the officers can stop. Uh, and that where there is a reasonable belief that the individual is armed and presently dangerous, and presently dangerous, then the officer can conduct a frisk. There were three, as, as I understand it, three components to the Terry holding that I think are very, very relevant to this case. First of all, that a pat-down is not a minimal intrusion. Second of all, that the limitation placed on Terry is where there is a, uh, a reasonable belief that the threat is uh, of an individual that is armed and presently dangerous. This is to an actual and immediate threat, not a possible or a potential one. And the third is, and, and this I think is very, very important, I'm not sure it's been touched on uh, adequately to this point, is that before the officer may begin the pat-down, the officer must give the individual an opportunity to dispel any safety concerns. In this case, of course, there was no opportunity given. The officers came up and didn't ask any questions, didn't conduct any type of investigation, just went right to the frisk. If, if the petitioner's position is correct, that would follow, would it not? That with, with a gun in the guy's pocket, as they believe, to ask a bunch of questions is, is not going to uh, 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 obviate any public safety concern. It is correct, Your, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that if the state's proposal were adopted, yes, at that point, the officers would be entitled to move directly to the frisk, and they wouldn't have to do anything else. But, of course, that proposal depends, number one, on the tip being a reliable tip, which, of course, there is no showing here, uh, that also — Does it matter if the tipster said uh, these are young people, and under Florida law, someone under 21 may not have a weapon? Does that alter the equation here? I don't believe it does, Your Honor. Why and, not? And this is why. If the statute were to it say — It is an additional factor. If the statute, Your Honor, were to say that young people couldn't possess guns, then I think it would make all the difference in the world. Well, it, it, does Florida law prohibit people under age 21 from carrying concealed weapons? No. Under Florida law, in, uh, individuals may possess weapons for a limited purpose, but in terms of having a license to carry a concealed firearm, 21 is the limit. However, in this case, of course, there was no tip. Now, that ju said just a minute, so I'm clear. It is, is it lawful or not in Florida for someone under 21 to have a concealed weapon? No. Not, it, uh, it is not lawful. It is not lawful. In order to have now, a it, then if the tipster says it is a young person who has a concealed weapon, he's standing on a street corner in a plaid shirt. The officer goes there and says, hmm, plaid shirt, street corner, yep, looks young. That's an additional factor, isn't Your, it? Your Honor, if I may answer you this way. If the officer were to have gone to the street corner with a tip that said young, and said uh, and testified to this, and I must tell you, as you as you, as you no doubt noticed, that the the transcript in this case is very very small. If the officer would have gone and said, "I have a tip of a young individual on a corner," and went there, and the officer had testified, "I looked at this individual, and he looked less than twenty, he looked younger than twenty-one," our position might be different. But of course, that didn't happen. Uh, young is a variable term. I think Webster's. Third World Dictionary defines young as more, uh, as, well, I'm sorry, I was, I was You don't need to belabor that point. With okay. Respect. Excuse me, I, no, I, I, I may, may, may I say that, that I don't understand why it would make any difference in the world? 
all it would show is that if he had a gun, it would be unlawful. It would make no difference whatever to the reliability of the tip that he had a gun. It would just go to whether, if he did have it, he had it unlawfully. I, I don't see how it affects it. Well, the basis of your case is that the tip was not reliable enough, isn't it? I, I think that's correct. And this doesn't go at all to the reliability of the it, tip. It may go, if I may, to, as I understood the Court's question, it may go to whether there was a reasonable suspicion independent of the tip. And the tip may have provided, arguably may have provided a context for what the officer there says. Is, there is no doubt that I think in the cases, reasonable suspicion has been used to date to refer to reasonable suspicion that crime is afoot. And they have a number of circumstances here that give that suspicion, but they concede that on the ordinary standard, I think it wouldn't meet it as so far. But suppose that it was a bomb at a school. I mean, I'm testing the proposition of whether that word reasonableness varies, at least sometimes, in light just not of the suspicion about whether the person has the bomb, but the very fact that it's a bomb. I understand you. you uh, yeah. You're, I mean, that's the obvious question. That is. And, and of course, and that's I, the I'm, thing that disturbs me the most. I just can't believe that if somebody called up, described the person in detail, said he has a bag, and moreover, he has uh, thousands of pounds of bomb material in that bag outside the courthouse or the school, I can't believe that the police shouldn't go and find out. But, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I agree with you, Your Honor. There, there are — one could envision situations that are uh, increasingly more difficult. Right, well, to once you say that, then the question becomes whether a gun is or is not enough like a bomb to warrant the variance. L let me see if I can clarify, Your Honor. I, I did, in, in no sense did I concede that a bomb is different. Oh, well, what do you think about the bomb? I mean, I'm, I put it as dramatically as I could because well, I wanted to get — I wanted you to see the point of the question. Uh, if it's a bomb about — and they call up, you know, a big bomb in a bag, uh, same amount of — in fact, less belief, really, because people don't normally carry bombs in bags. But uh, uh, they say that uh, — you see the point. Clear description of the person, clear description of the bag, Within five minutes, they go to the place, and there somebody who meets a detailed description is standing there with precisely the bag. Can the police open the bag? Uh, no. The answer, the answer is a difficult question, Ron, and I would, I would say that in general terms, the answer is no. And, and, I, and what I'm suggesting, of course, I understand that these are difficult questions. And what if it's in a school, and the school is very nervous about danger to the students? And they get the tip about someone in the school, either with a weapon or a bomb. Uh, let me suggest both questions. Uh, I understand that, that that one can conceive of very difficult questions. Uh, that that my my answer. Well, my answer, Your Honor. <laughs> yes, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, my answer is is that in very limited circumstances where there is an actual and immediate danger and where the danger is so extreme that it constitutes an extreme public emergency in those situations, I, I would, I would uh, suggest that in those situations reasonable suspicion might bend. But those are in a very, very limited and narrow set of The same for probable cause. I mean, suppose they say the bomb is — it's a big bomb and it's in his locker. It's not on his person. So even if you did a stop and frisk, you wouldn't discover it. But they say, this guy has an enormous bomb. It's in the school building in his locker. Now, could you go? A stop and frisk won't, won't disclose it. 
Do you have probable cause on the basis of this anonymous <coughs> to go and conduct a search and seizure of, of a law? I, I believe you do not. And here is why. Here's the analysis, at least, that, that seems to be at least most comfortable to me in, I, in, in preparing for the, for the bomb question, because it is. It is a very obvious question that one might answer. I might say that, first of all, if the tip were based — I'm sorry, if the if — the, the, the belief of a bomb is based on a tip. My first — the first thing that an officer needs to do is, is this a reliable tip? It doesn't meet all the other requirements. Well, our assumption is it's anonymous. All right, you don't know if it's reliable. It came out of the blue. It's a phone call. That's the tip. Yeah. You don't know Yes, anything. Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. If, if it is a — if it is not — if it's an anonymous tip, then the next thing that I believe a police officer ought to do is, is there any kind of independent police work that I can do to either corroborate what I've heard in this tip or find something other, other than that that's suspicious? If there's not any other corroborating information that I can get, I need to make an on-the-spot determination whether this is an actual and immediate threat. There are, there are a lot of bomb tips that come into police stations. Uh, police uh, — have, they, they do need to make dis, dis, distinctions, discriminations as to which tips present a, an actual and immediate one versus when, where's there a potential. Well, how I think do you we know? Can how this. can you possibly make that assessment as a police officer when you're in a place like a school or a public building with many people uh, potentially in great danger? How do you make that assessment? I think under a totality of circumstances approach, it is, it's, it's what's in the tip. If the tip were that, that there's a bomb here and it's going to go off at some time be- before 12 o'clock, well, then there's, there's an opportunity to make this, this investigation. Our case, of course, asks whether there's — All right, doing, but you're, you're saying that a gun is not as serious as a bomb. What I'm suggesting to the Court is that the nature of the offense in general terms ought not to reduce the reasonable suspicion standard. Okay, then let's assume that with, with all the efforts the police may make in the bomb case — or with no efforts, because there is no time. The police have, have nothing more than they have in this case, except instead of a gun, the tip talks about a bomb. Is it lawful for the police to go into the school locker, in Justice O'Connor's example? In general terms, I would say no, unless the officers make an on-the-spot determination that, based on their experience, there is an actual and immediate threat. No, but they don't know that. All they know is the tip. Then if there's not — if they cannot make a determination that there's an actual immediate threat there, then I would — then I would answer your question, no. Do you think they it would, would be not. a proper answer to say there are times when the police ought to commit trespass and just go in anyway, Fourth Amendment or no Fourth Amendment? Uh, I, I, again, I think that the answer to that is generally no. If, there, if the police have uh, believed that there's an actual and immediate threat, the situation — they may be entitled to do that. That's not the situation here, of course. Here, what we have is we have individuals who are doing absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. The officer testified at the suppression hearing that the, in so many words, that the only reason that she stopped these boys were because they were standing next to a bus stop. For all we know, they could have been waiting for a bus. And the argument that's made by the state is not limited to juveniles, and I don't think it would make a difference even if it was limited to juveniles, because we don't have enough here to even in, uh, suggest that a off, reasonable officer would have believed these were juveniles. But uh, if, if you accept the proposition that there was suspicion that this juvenile was carrying the gun illegally because juveniles aren't allowed to carry concealed weapons in Florida, there is a difference then between this case and someone who was, say, 35 years old. 
The only, Mr. Chief, the only difference would be if the officer were to have testified, I looked at this individual, I could tell that this individual was a juvenile, and I could tell that this individual didn't well, fit within one of the exceptions okay, for you juveniles. S- you say the transcript is very sparse, and I agree with you. But here, the individual turns out to be under 16. And I, I think it's a fair inference that a person, a, a police officer looking at someone under 16, without knowing as it can say this person is under 21. With all due respect, I, I would not be as readily to make that, that, uh, that inference. Uh, we, we don't know what, the, what this respondent looked like. Again, the officer could have easily testified to that, and she didn't. And I don't know, I, I don't believe that we can fairly read into the record that by looking at this individual, she, told, she could tell that he was, that he was a juvenile. I think we are bound by what we are what we are given, and what we are given is Alabama versus White, with no predictive element. Well, it was your suppression hearing too. I mean, in a sense, you had the burden of proof to show that the evidence should be suppressed. And if if you want to cross-examine and say, did you really think this uh, make any determination about this person's age? You could have done so. Our responsibility, as I understand it, under a motion to suppress is, is, is to bring forth the arguments that this was not a, a lawful stop and see and. First, the state at that point had every opportunity to show that it was a lawful one. This is not a mere uh, uh, matter of semantics. I believe that this is a very important case because right, I now, Yes, but I'm still disturbed about the bomb. And the reason is you vacillated a little. Or I think between one I could see saying, well, there's a across-the-board public safety exception from probable cause and the other things. Of course, if there's an atomic bomb, they're going to look. And they should. So there's an exception rarely invoked for public safety of extreme sorts. All right, you take that tack, then you've got to at least say, what about guns in schools? If you don't take that tack and just say you can vary the reasonable suspicion for bombs, then you've got to explain why at least guns in schools is, is somehow uh, different from a bomb in a school. I mean, and it seems to me you have to do one or the other, or you have to take the absolute position, nope, not even a bomb, not even the atomic bomb, etc. I don't see how you can avoid taking one of those three positions. And, and Your Honor, that's why I preface this with, with uh, there are hypotheticals that one could come up with. Well, that's, but it's, the hy- it's not purely hypothetical. What's disturbing me about the case is I don't know exactly what to analogize guns to. Should I try to distinguish between guns in a bus stop and guns in a school? Should I try to start distinguishing between guns and bombs in the latter case? How do I deal with it? That's a real problem I'm having, not some hypothetical one. And, and, and I, I believe the answer was in Terry. The answer is whether there is an actual and immediate threat. Where there is an actual and immediate threat, this Court under Terry and the cases that have, have relied upon Terry have said that at that point, the officers are authorized to do what they need to well, do. Well, that may not be enough. We're in a time after we've seen tragedies like at the Columbine High School in Colorado. And if I'm correct, a number of high schools around the country are now putting out guidelines and asking fellow students to please alert the school authorities any time that the student thinks there might be someone in the school with a gun. And so I think we're going to see lots of anonymous tips coming along in the setting of public schools and in the aftermath of some real tragedies. Now, what's our analysis supposed to be? Does it bend a little or does it not? No, I do not believe that your analysis changes 
at all from where it is now. On that same, on that same question, we have any number of countless cases of Terry stops where there was a furtive movement. It was a high crime neighborhood and so forth. In a sense, it seems to me a tip from an outside source made to a police dispatcher. Um, has a somewhat more authenticity that perhaps our earlier cases have, have, have indicated. I would suggest, Justice Con- uh, uh, Kennedy, that it, it has even less. And the reason I say that is this. This Court has, has, has said in, in Adams that where there's a tip from an, a known informant and, uh, who is subject to state laws uh, for filing false complaints, it adds a d- degree of, a special degree of reliability. This Court has also held that where there is sufficient meaningful corroboration to the tip, that also ends a special, lends a special degree of familiarity. Here we have none of that. This is an anonymous tipster. There is no way for an individual to trace the tipster or no way for the police to trace the, tri- the tipster. There's nothing about the, the details that were in this tip other than a bald allegation of the presence of a gun that would in any way allow for the police officer or court reviewing this to make a determination of a meaningful corroboration. That's true, but what do you do about, say, students have guns in schools, you know, and it's quite possible some other kid knows that the gun and can describe everything in utmost detail but just doesn't want to get involved. So he phones up, describes it in absolute detail, but doesn't give his name. And general. then it checks out immediately, but for the name. In I mean, it isn't, it isn't just an absurd uh, uh, tip. It isn't great reliability, but it isn't terrible. In general, Your Honor, uh, when I, uh, I believe that the analysis has been established. If the, if, if the tip is not inherently reliable, it must give enough information to allow for a meaningful corroboration. Now, I would, uh, I would suggest also is, is that... Is that based on the assumption that most anonymous tips are uh, unfounded? Uh, I, certainly that is one of the concerns. We... Uh, uh, statistics there's no, there's no evidence of that either way. Uh, we have cited in our brief one estimate that shows that 90, that, that 90 percent of the tips are unreliable, anonymous tips. Let me suggest to the Court, it, it, whether the, the, the figure is 90 percent or 80 percent or 70 percent. That, that was anecdotal and, and quite true. I, I understand that, On Your the right. other hand, I agree with you. I see nothing on the other side. Uh, there is nothing on the other. And uh, this, is, this is a, uh, I believe, Your Honors, is a very fundamental question case, because it's going, it goes to the heart of the relationship between police and citizens in a free society. Mr. Stavro, may I ask you, uh, in, the, in the school setting, uh, I just, this just occurred to me, so tell me if I'm wrong in thinking this way, that there's a custodial kind of relationship between the school and the students. So if there's a tip about a student gun, maybe the principal has some authority, which the principal can give to the police that doesn't exist when you have an anonymous tip about somebody standing at a bus stop. I believe that's absolutely correct. And, that, and that's why I answered Judge, uh, Justice Breyer's question in general. Uh, I think that that's absolutely correct. Uh, one could envision that if, if the state's proposal were adopted, you're going to have situations, or we are all going to have situations, where in a child custody case, an embittered spouse seeks to seek advantage over the other spouse and calls in a tip. Employees who have a grudge against employers are going to call in a tip. You're going to have, you can even have lawyers who get an adverse ruling call in a tip. There is nothing about this tip that distinguishes not only these individuals, 
but distinguishes the tipster to show that the tipster bears uh, uh, a particular familiarity with the individuals. Generally, as this Court knows, the law is that the tipster has to know something. He's got to know something about the suspect or about the crime that would allow the police officer to believe well, that he knows something more. But here what you have is you have an individual. We don't know. The individual could have been another child. There, there's nothing to say who this person is. And to adopt a, a, a rule that says the bald assertion that somebody's got a, got a gun is going to allow police, unhampered, to stop and frisk anybody anywhere at any time is just too much. You, we need to hold tipsters accountable. You need to hold police accountable. This is a very important case, Your Honor. Indeed, uh, uh, we, we, we distrust policemen enough that we have the exclusionary rule in order to, to deter them from uh, uh, conducting unreasonable searches and seizures. But I guess it would be pretty neat for uh, the tipster to be another policeman. Uh, all you have to do is uh, is allege that the person has a gun, and uh, it will permit a, a search, a body search, which may not uh, uncover a gun, but may well uncover marijuana, uh, cocaine, or, or some other uh, un- unlawful uh, uh, contraband. That's certainly one of the the, the more troubling implications. Well, yeah, why would that be? I mean, they haven't said that. I, I'm this not is an instance where the tipster calls up, gives, we could imagine, I don't know how much detail you have to have, but they say there's a description. Uh, the description we can imagine is in detail. Imagine that it is. You know, the, the issue is the anonymity, not just calling up and say somebody has a gun. He, ha- he has to describe the person in some detail. It has to check out. It's not that there are no checks. It's just there isn't enough of a check. It, it, it is true that in, in, in White, this Court held that the same type of details, absent a tip, would not have been sufficient. Uh, I, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, there are certainly problems, and we're not relying on this, but it is an implication of the case. Uh, certainly we've cited to, uh, to instances in Los Angeles, New York, uh, Detroit, Philadelphia, where police fabrication has now been called into serious question. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting that this is going to happen. But it is, it is also true from a common-sense perspective that if this proposal were adopted, tips that now come into police stations and you want immediate action, all you got to say is he's got a gun, and the police are going to be right there, and they're going to be authorized to make a stop and make a frisk on the same basis. And it's, it's, it's rather ironic, Your Honors, that if the same information, if the police officer had been on this street corner and seen the respondent looking exactly the way the tipster said he was going to look, and Solomon said, Based on my 30 years' experience, that person looks like he's up to no good. He looks like he's going to commit a crime, and he looks like he's armed and dangerous. That under this Court's law, that officer would not be entitled to move in on that hunch. But that, that's the Alabama against White. That's the, that says the, the other circumstances other than the anonymous tip were not enough, but coupled with the anonymous tip, it was. The, the, in Alabama versus White, as I understand it, the, the critical factor in making the determination was that there was corroboration of predictive features of the tip, and that absent those predictive features and absent the corroboration of those predictive features, the tip in Alabama versus White would not have been sufficient. But again, if the officer had a hunch based on his or her 30 years' experience and seeing the very same things that were, in, that were named in the tip, the officer would not be entitled to make yes, a stop. Yes, but uh, I, perhaps you missed my point with respect to Alabama. That was exactly the analysis of the court in Alabama against White, that the corroborate, the, without the tip, 
what the officer did and saw would not be sufficient. With the tip, it was. So the fact that an officer standing on the street corner here could have seen uh, without the tip uh, and still couldn't have done anything really is is not any in, uh, inconsistency at all. It's quite consistent with our doctrine. Your Honor, uh, Your Honor as, again, as I — and I hope I'm answering your question directly. Uh, as I understand, White, it was — yes, that there was a tip. But it was the corroboration of the predictive features in the tip that made all the difference. If the tip were, didn't have any predictive features, then even though there was a tip and even though there was corroboration of details of identification, this Court in White found that to be insufficient. I That's don't under, do you really understand this predictive features, uh, uh, Philip, on, on, on the doctrine? I mean, suppose the tipsters here had said there's a fellow in a plaid shirt standing on the corner and he's going to continue to stand on the corner for two more hours. Would that be enough? I don't, I don't really see I don't believe another so. predictive feature, unless it's, uh, there's something suspicious in the predictive feature. I, I agree, Your Honor. I never understood that about the case. It, 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 as I understand the predictive features, you predict conduct. As it, well, of course, Wordlow didn't have conduct, but, it, but it's the conduct that is the most critical. If the, if, if the person said he's going to on the street corner and he's going to catch the number four bus, well, that would be all the difference. If he's standing there and he's not doing anything, you have no predictive features of anything to corroborate. And absent those predictive features, I think what you have in, in, in all seriousness is you do have a situation where anybody anywhere could be stopped for nothing more than casual observation. This Court said in, in White that in order to allow for meaningful corroboration, there has to be that something more. Because the tip has to be as to facts or events of things that are not occurring at the time that the tip was made, as to uh, 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 things uh, that um, are not available by casual observation or rumor or reputation. And then, of course, the Court went on to the meaningful corroboration and used the predictive elements to provide that meaningful corroboration. In this sense, everything that was in that tip were things that were occurring at the time that the tip was made. Everything in that tip were things that were available by casual observation by somebody who just saw these, these guys and didn't like them. Just didn't like them. I don't want these gentlemen in my neighborhood. So I'm going to call in a tip. There is nothing in the record to show or even suggest that this was a high-crime area. There is absolutely nothing to show that these gentlemen made any furtive movements, that they ran from police. The typical situation, again, is the police come up and they confront somebody, and if they sweat, if they gave evasive answers, if they make furtive movements, if they run, that's the typical situation where a tip, which has only details of identification, might be sufficient. But in this case, there wasn't any of that, and the state's not even suggesting that there ought to be. What the state is saying is that if there is a bald tip with a naked assertion, that's enough. And we would suggest to the court that under under White and under Adams versus Williams, Illinois versus Gates, the answer to that is no. There has to be a meaningful corroboration. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Stepler. Uh, Mr. Neiman, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you. The Questions concerning the bomb really underscore the duality of the issues in front of the court. The first issue is that the Florida Supreme Court said an anonymous, anonymous tip could never be enough. And clearly, with the bomb situation, it would have to be enough. There's too much public safety involved. The second question then becomes, under the facts of this case, were the facts sufficient? 
to allow the stop and frisk un, under the situation. In this situation, because the, the, it was a juvenile, there is a problem in Florida with juveniles and handguns. The tip was immediately corroborated that these individuals were at the exact location, uh, dressed accordingly within six minutes. Then what was the officer supposed to do under those circumstances? The officer could have waited and had the, the, put the public safety in jeopardy or could have gone to investigate. If he investigated, he would have put his life in jeopardy by not immediately frisking the individual. And that is why, in this case, on the factual situation, the state submits that the Florida Supreme Court was wrong if, in fact, on the law, they were wrong as well. As to the question of the 22-year-old in Florida, because uh, an individual has only a privilege to carry a concealed firearm, there really is no problem with an officer if there is a tip that an individual is carrying a concealed firearm who is 22 or even older to come up to that individual and ask for the permit. But before you ask for the permit, if you ask somebody for a gun, just because they're legally carrying a gun, that doesn't mean they're going to legally use a gun. And therefore, again, even in that situation, the public safety, the officer's safety, in ascertaining whether or not the individual has a permit to carry that gun would allow the immediate frisk upon the stop. And then the interrogation occurs. And upon the interrogation, do you have a permit? Yes, I do. Here it is. Thank you very much. Here's your gun. And the stop, as a Terry stop should be, is limited because the criminal activity, the suspicion of criminal activity was dispelled. And that's the, the dispelling point of it at, in this type of situation. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Neiman. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.